0: Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories, available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr.
1: We're at the Christian Baker Farm near historic Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is military historian Mark Carlson. He's the author of Vengeance of the Last Roman Legion. Deep in a French cellar, a Roman legion awakens from a self-imposed hibernation. The day has at last come to emerge and wreak revenge on their hated Germanic enemy for a savage massacre. But 2,000 years have passed. The world has changed, but their vengeance will not die. A NATO investigator learns of this, but cannot believe his evidence. It is true. The Romans are coming, and time is running out for them and their prey. Mark Carlson is a writer and author with 20 years of work in military history. He has over 200 published articles in national magazines and is a popular and respected public speaker. A student of classical history, he has worked on this book for nearly 10 years. Legally blind, Carlson lives in San Diego and is a member of many veteran and historical groups. Mark Carlson, welcome.
2: Thank you very much.
1: So, uh, you know, I was looking at uh, these historical fiction, alternate history novels, uh, the four of them, The Vengeance of the Roman, the Last Roman Legion series. And uh, I know your other work prior to this for us was the Marines' Lost Squadron, and I was trying to put together in my mind, how does a naval historian get into Roman history? So maybe you could tell the audience your back and forth there, or what your background is.
2: There is quite a leap, there's no doubt about it, but military history is military history. There is always a common thread, and if you're interested in even World War II history, World War One history, uh, you're going to have some interest in classical military history, and I've always been fascinated by things, probably back to the Civil War, the Peloponnesian Wars, and the the wars of rome and so on so it's not too not too great a leap there's still men fighting for their cause and so on um the, the real difference is that this is a, the vengeance of the last roman legion is a fiction novel but it is based on an actual historical event
1: right right so uh yeah, the, the Roman Legion, a Roman Legion, was routed in Germany uh, in the Teutoburg Forest, was it not? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, horrified, horrified the leadership in Rome. And w- who was the emperor at that time? Um, well,
2: the the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest took place during the reign of the Emperor Augustus. Right. In eighty nine, and it was an attempt by Augustus to send legions into uh, barbarian Germania, which was part of the empire, to, to quell a series of of uprisings and riots and settle things down, but also to tax, to tax and make use of the the uh, the area and the manpower there. Sure. The man in charge, uh, Quintilius Publius Verus, uh, with the the leader of the, the legion that was sent in there, and he was about the worst person to put into this, this very, very tense region with a lot of anger and uh, resentment toward Rome, and he made things worse, and uh, he sparked an uprising by a man who had been trained by the Romans, Arminius, who right. became a the uh, Roman officer for the auxiliary. And he ended up uh, sparking the uprising, which massacred three Roman legions in the Tudorberg forest in the uh, late summer of AD 9. And it was the worst massacre in Roman history. It marked right up there with Cannae. And it just it was a horrible event. It was like our little bighorn, our uh, Pearl Harbor. It was that bad. Right. And it took Rome a long time to recover. And that's the basis of the novel.
1: Yeah. Yeah, as you were saying, Augustus, I looked over to my left as I have a bust of Caesar Augustus in my living room, believe it or not, <laughs> I I see him as one of the probably the greatest ruler in Western civilization for a lot of reasons. But also, you know, there's a lot of bad things in the in Augustus's story. But we won't get into all that. We're into Germany and uh, at least proto-Germany at that time. And I know, you know, being of German descent myself, there's always this "Hey, the Romans never conquered us" kind of thing. So. You know, your, your novel gets into, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, that early history and that great massacre, which is a fascinating event historically. So um, before you get more into the how it converts into the 20s, 20th, 21st century, you're, you mentioned you're a student of classical history. Is that formal or informal? Do you have a degree in it, or is it just more your uh, avocation?
2: I do not have a degree in it, but it is definitely an avocation. It's a passion. Um, but probably the two elements of classical history are the, the Spartans and Greeks, um, and the Peloponnesian wars and the Greek and Persian wars, Greco-Persian war, as well as, uh, Egypt and Rome. They are all fascinating subjects to me. I mean, the yeah. tip with the beginning of organized warfare. And the great armies really came together, and even well into the 20th century, there were there are leaders who have followed those models that learned from them. And you you can't really understand warfare unless you understand how it all began, and how they actually fought battles, and what their um, what the training was like, and what the men were like, and so on. so it's, it's, it's definitely the foundation for any kind of study of military history.
1: Yeah, I've always been fascinated too by the Roman roads, the network of roads, and thinking about the logistics, and really, you know, they while they were important for commerce, they were most important the way the legions could move around rapidly uh, throughout the empire. Um, I, when we get into uh, Germania, you know, what is it about that region in those days that uh, it was so hard to put down, so hard to uh, conquer? Unlike some of the other, you know, Julius Caesar had just conquered Gaul just a few decades before. Um, you know, what was so tough about right across the Rhine, the other side of the Rhine?
2: Well, Gaul was had its uh, had its insurgents. There was no doubt about it. There were plenty of insurgents in Gaul, modern France. But the the area had been largely settled and pacified and Rome had cities and whole communities in there. And that's where they spread out, where Gaul and it were what we would call the Galate and Belgicae uh, and Aquitaine all the way up to Britain. But the The Germans were a serious problem. When you crossed the Rhine, you were into barbarian territory. except for some of the big forts along the Rhine, um, the the bulk of Germania was very dangerous. Now at that time, Europe was heavily forested. I mean it was extremely dense. If you were able to fly a plane over, over that region uh, 2,000 years ago, you would see nothing but dense forest. And under that forest were hundreds of small and dozens of large tribes that insisted on being themselves. They were very close to, like, the Vikings in, that, in their mindset. And they resented Rome very much so. They did not want to be Conquered or governed, and there were plenty of uprisings. And Germanicus, one of the leaders, that, Roman leaders, that tried to control these things. But by the time Varus went in in 9 AD, it was simmering, it was ready to explode, and it took very little for Arminius to bring the tribes together to uh, foment an uprising against the 15,000. Or so, Roman soldiers, with what may be as many as twenty-five to fifty thousand German, who were willing to fight.
1: Well, on that note, Mark. On that mark, on that note, Mark. We've got the armies lined up on both sides. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back.
0: Sunbury Press Books is the home of independent and diverse authors. Check out the agency books imprint for detective, law enforcement, espionage, terrorism, spy thrillers, and more. Among the works available, The Apologist, a Luke Lundy novel by A.A. A. Weiss, J.A. Walsh's Purpose of Evasion, and Douglas Brody's Sand, or Once Upon a Time in the Jazz Age. Find these and other fascinating books at sunburypress.com. I'm
1: back with Mark Carlson the author of the four-book series, The Vengeance of the Last Roman Legion. Mark, uh, you know, the last segment we talked all about that early history of uh, Germania and uh, first century invasion and the tragicals. Uh, I, know, I know it's a four-part series, but it bridges 2,000 years. So how do you make the leap and sort of give us a little more of the plot Let's tease the readers here and get them interested.
2: Well, the the plot is definitely fictional, but it is something that I worked on for 14 years. And I like to say that the book is 2014 years in the making. Uh, Out of the Darkness with the, is the first one, and that is where this Roman legion that has... Put itself into a cellar in Gaul, and into hibernation with the help of an alchemist to sleep for what they felt would be about twenty years, so that they could emerge after Augustus had died, and be able to emerge and wreak vengeance on the German, uh, Germania, and that's that's the basis of the story, but. They overslept by 20th century.
1: Rip Van Winkle in on the stairways. Huh?
2: time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there were, uh, they did do the lot in the intervening time, but they enough of them came out to still be a real threat. And of course, nobody knows they're coming. The whole world has forgotten about them, and uh, now they're marching east. It, it is probably the most difficult ways to to write this plot to make it work and make it believable or at least plausible and that's why it ended up becoming a four-part series right
1: right right so i on the one hand you think all right a bunch of roman soldiers with their you know their outfits, their short swords, you know, whatever else they're carrying. They come walking out of a cave and go walking down the, uh, the M1 or the Audubon and, uh, you know, cars whizzing past, helicopters and planes overhead. You're like, whoa, what is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> um, must, the technology must look marvelous on the one hand, like it's magical, but um, what is it about those Romans historically that would make them lethal in a modern world? without giving well, away you, too much yeah
2: well the the two greatest armies of the ancient world were the Spartan and the Roman even though they're, they're separate by several hundred years um, the roman army was the best equipped best trained best organized uh, army of the ancient world and they had thirty legions, and each legion composed of forty-eight hundred actual soldiers, actual legionaries and officers, but with all the the auxiliary, auxiliaries, the, uh, and the and the support elements, about seven thousand men, and they could march uh, twenty-five, thirty miles in full gear a day and still fight a battle at the end of it. So they were much tougher than anybody today. And so they could be a real threat should they ever emerge in the modern world. The trick was to keep them hidden until they reached the point towards the end of a series in which they actually were able to wreak their vengeance right. on the German. And I also had to find a way to make them the good guys.
1: Ah. I see. So it isn't like they show up in Angela Merkel's house or something. <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> i know it's not a comedy um yeah so they stay hidden through all that time and i would imagine that uh there's a lot of challenges to that and so i i know that it's been pretty well received so far what, what have you been get, seeing or hearing from your colleagues friends uh readers that you've been in touch with has there, has there been a pretty good response to it
2: yeah it has i've the Some people that have read the entire series have been anxious, eager to read the the last book that the article comes out. Uh, Several of my friends who are Roman reenactors have been waiting for it for 10 years. They finally were able to read it. They they, uh, were pleased not only that I got the historical elements, uh, the actual authentic elements, correct. Right but that i made it a very very compelling novel the kind you don't want to put down it is rather long that's why uh sunbury press decided that it should be a four-part series because it's it's on the length of gone with the wind if it were a single book right it's it worked out very well and this way i could organize the four parts out of the darkness and legionary, Hunters and Hunted, and Vendicta, which is the last book. And Vendicta is a Latin word which means punishment, revenge. Mm-hmm. And that's what the whole story, the, the, the 54th Legion that was created for this uh, revenge, was called the 54th Legion, Legio 54, Vindicta. And uh, it was necessary to create a fair amount of science fiction to make it work. But it's uh, Thomas Hardy said um, there's nothing too strange to have actually happened that uh, that makes it possible. And that's one of the best things about being a novelist, being able to take something that is impossible and make it seem plausible.
1: Yeah, well, that's just, what makes it entertaining,
2: right? Just like Martin Caden in uh, Final Countdown, for instance.
1: Right.
2: Impossible, but boy, it, it was just too good to not read. You know.
1: Well, I think the strength of it is the historical accuracy of the Legionnaires, their equipment, their behavior, their actions, how they're organized. You know, so you you have that um, very done very well. Certainly, people who have read it. Who know a lot more about it than me have said that and then you you create this fascinating situation you bring it to the present day and it's sort of a what if what if this would happen what would it be like and uh, that's what makes it entertaining that we can you know sit in our living rooms bedrooms studies wherever reading this and thinking oh my gosh (laughs) this this is so cool this Roman Legion is marching through and uh, it's 2020 2021, whatever. Mark, we're going to have to take another break, and we're going to come back and talk about your other works in just a minute.
0: The Writers' Conference of Northern Appalachia takes place March 10th and 11th at Robert Morris University. This two-day conference brings together authors and enthusiasts interested in the literature of the region with the aim of recognizing past writers and helping current ones develop. Twenty workshops and presentations on poetry, heritage, historical fiction, as well as voice and marketing. Register at wcona.com.
1: I'm back with Mark Carlson, military historian. And uh, we've been talking about his four-book series, The The Vengeance of the Last Roman Legion. Uh, But we're going to close out here in the last segment talking about Mark's other works, which are nonfiction. I know uh, one of our better-selling books in the category, The Marines Lost Squadron, been out for a little while. Uh, What is that about?
2: Uh, The Marines Lost Squadron, which uh, I'm still very, very proud of, uh, tells an account of an actual event, uh, happened in the beginning of 1944 when a Marine Corps fighter squadron was caught in a cyclone over the Pacific and was almost wiped out and it came to me during a um, uh, public event which I was promoting my previous book and the uh, I was asked if I had ever heard about the, um, the Flintlock disaster, and I said, no, and this man started telling me the story about the Flintlock disaster, and it was amazing. I just never come across it, and I, he was able to put me into talking to the surviving members of the squadron, and it started out first as an article in aviation history in 2015, but it needed more and i started four years of working on the that actually culminated in four years of working on that book and finding the people involved in writing the account it is the only and really the only possible full account of a hidden event of the second world war and it really came across came together so well i could not believe how lucky i was and i even was able to contact the um, Department of the Navy and talk to the Judge Advocate General's office to get the original transcript and everything about the the inquiry. And I got the response so fast, I could not believe these people were actually working for the U.S. government. (laughs) So it was a a dedicated work to tell the story of these men and uh, finally bring it all out they they're all gone now. Yeah. Know, the last one died uh, late last year and it's, so this is the only time that anybody would ever be able to read about VMF 422 the Flying Buccaneers. You're the
1: lucky, flying you are very lucky. Yeah, very lucky to have uh, had that conversation with them as they were in their last years. So yeah, you're right. Um, you know, so an example. I was just thinking as you were talking, man, that could be your doctoral dissertation, <laughs> something like that. Pretty remarkable book with uh, a piece of history that hadn't been written about before, and you did all that research. So, I know that that's done very well for us, and we continue to have that out. I know we're working on some some new books for you. Uh, three of them are naval history. One of them's about the Lincoln assassination. So the naval history ones, I'll just step through them. Uh, War at Sea. I know that's a compilation of articles over what span of time? Generally speaking, are they more World War II-oriented naval articles, or are they more general?
2: Yeah, the War at Sea is a compilation of 21 articles and essays that I wrote over the last decade for various magazines. And being a contributor for magazines, and you're usually limited with word count—around 3,000 words, sometimes more—but I always wish I could write more for a particular story, and uh, Lawrence Knorr of, of Sunbury Press suggested I put together this compilation, and this way I could expand, and so that was incredible, to be able to take these articles and expand them and link them together and cover uh, the war at sea between 1776 and the end of World War II. Uh really linking them all together they aren't always connected directly but they follow a chronological uh, path and they really come together and and tell the history of warfare all the way from the days of fail uh into Mm -hmm. the the end of the second world war and culminating with the suicide run of the Japanese super battleship Yamato in April of 1945 and bringing all of naval history together so it was a really a great and fun project to do I mean I really cut loose and, uh, and had fun writing it as well as finally being able to do what i would always wanted to do with these articles
1: Yeah yeah we're looking forward to that I know um the next one when is it Yamamoto or Yamato ran wild yamamoto so the admiral okay yeah yeah That's so now you're getting into it, is that more um, like around the time of the battle of midway and um or set us up with that one when was yamamoto no. running wild
2: well being a student of, of, of world war ii's history I've studied many aspects of it about it, but the two th- the two parts of World War II history that have always really had a grip on me was aviation and naval history, mm-hmm. uh, although I've followed net land campaigns many times. But uh, I've always had a... I guess you could really call it a passion and in the interest of the first six months after Pearl Harbor, when the United States was thrown into this war and pulled into it... Um, those first six months were—it's—it's it's hard to imagine it today. The closest you can really come is that empty, cold fear right after nine eleven. Yeah, the way the country was suddenly like, "What is going to happen? What does this mean?" That—that's the way it was in the, the right after December seventh, nineteen forty one. The way the whole country was suddenly afraid of this super enemy that could not lose and Yamamoto, the commander-in-chief of the Japanese combined fleet was uh, he w- he had promised his prime minister if I am forced to war- fight war with the United States I will run wild for six months or a year but I have absolutely no confidence in the second or third year uh, He really believed that the United States would eventually... Um, become too strong to fight. So he was trying to take over the entire Central and Western Pacific as quickly as possible. And it was an incredible victory time for them where they ended up suffering victory disease. And it, it meant that the United States had to find a way to be able to fight back. And that's what this is all about, the bringing them to the point where they could actually fight back and Battle of Midway was the turning point, but I'm taking the book up to the point where they were preparing for the Battle of Midway, because that's been yeah. so well covered by historians, there's no no need to go into that, I, I want to see the reader understand what it took to win, to start winning, and to stop Yamamoto's run running wild, and I have just finished the first draft of that.
1: Good. And I'm now ready to go. Well, I we only okay. have about a minute left and I wanted to ask you a question real quick cuz uh, in my doctoral studies I wrote an essay about Pearl Harbor and those early months and uh I surmised that you know many people see Midway as the turning point but I argued that actually Pearl Harbor was because the moment the Japanese got us into the war they were going to lose and the main reason for that was the aircraft carriers weren't there. And uh That's the turning point. If the aircraft carriers are in Pearl Harbor, we're set back. If the aircraft carriers aren't there, then we go on and win midway and we're able to um, defend the Pacific a little better. So the question for you I want to close with in the last 30 seconds, so if you could keep your answer concise if possible. Why weren't the aircraft carriers at Pearl Harbor?
2: Well... The the key element you just mentioned is the aircraft carrier, but you Europe also um, we also have to consider the submarine. Sure. Yep. The fact was that the, the Nagumo when he's he was supposed to send three waves of aircraft to destroy everything that could be of use to the U.S. fleet, but he was concerned about being sought out by submarines, and so he did not allow a third wave. And the third wave would have hit the tank farm, the Navy yard, and the submarine base. That did not happen. Uh And just by sheer chance, none of the carriers were in port. So when Pearl Harbor was burning with the the battle fleet on the bottom, and uh, Nagumo turned away, what we were left with was the aircraft carrier and the submarine. And they turned out to be the two most uh, important naval uh, vessels that turned the tide of the war. The aircraft carrier and the submarine were the ones that actually won the war for the most part. The surface fleet really supported the aircraft carrier while the submarine cut off Japanese trade. That's what really did it.
1: Well, Mark, this has been fascinating. We are out of time. We're going to have you back to continue on about Yamamoto and then your other
0: books as they come out. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.